Welcome to This Human Business, a podcast that explores the territory that might be claimed by a business that puts the human experience at the core of its work. Of course, there are many companies that talk about being human-centric. In practice, almost all of them put technology first, designing digital devices and only thinking about the impact these innovations will have on people long, long afterwards. The technologies that have been developed in the last generation are amazing, and the skills that are required to engineer these technologies should be held in high respect. Culture doesn't have to be a zero-sum game in which there are only winners and losers. Technologists in business don't always see it this way, unfortunately. Often they talk about humanity as a problem that needs to be solved, a source of regrettable error that must be overcome. People, they predict, will soon be obsolete. They speak with a fervor that only believers in the end times can summon about the singularity to come, when a post-human world will be born. It wasn't too long ago that digital technologies were widely regarded as a force for positive social change in the world, liberating us from stiff, old social limitations. Recently, however, attitudes have become more mixed. When I met Mark Lehman at a cafe at the end of a busy street in Lisbon, he told me of his concerns about the exploitation of the data that describes human lives. Mark Lehman, um, Chief Technology Officer at Global Citizen, based in New York. Well, Global Citizen itself has offices in Berlin, Melbourne, Australia, soon Johannesburg, New York, London, and of course we're the organization eradicating global poverty. I think people are becoming a lot more aware of the value of themselves as individual and the way that translates into a digital world their data. Your data actually is you and even if a person doesn't think so, your chromosomal strand is data. That's obviously you, but the whole thing about your personality, your likes, your dislikes, the way you propagate your mental and heart force in the world is another, just another form of data. That's, that's precious because it's, it's you and it's me. They don't want to just manipulate you as a individual but they also want to manipulate your your digital self but I think the point I'm really getting to here is we can sometimes be a little bit lax about our digital lives we pull the door shut behind us and we think nobody's going to open that door but you do get some organizations and people who will use that Mark works in technology he's no Luddite nonetheless his metaphor for digital technology has become that of a room that must be kept closed and locked in order for us to be safe. Chantal Voltring also came from a technical background and was initially predisposed to optimism about the integration of new technologies into human society. She still perceives opportunity for positive change through technological advancement, but has recently become more wary. So being an engineer by origin, I always liked the idea of 
the power and the leverage machines could give to humans as an amplifier of our possibilities. Um, but then they were an extension and we were in control. Now, the more and more we are subjected to screens and systems and procedures that basically dictate us which steps to take, I find we are, as humans, much less in control. And we are often over-constrained into a direction that we might not want to go. But somehow we feel unable to get out of there. And uh, so I think technology in itself could be both beautiful and destructive. And I think it's the way that it's used and implemented that makes a difference. Chantal reminds us of an important point. When we're talking about digital technology, even in its most sophisticated forms, we're not talking about a thing that exists on its own with its own sense of purpose. Technology is a tool invented by humans and used by humans. So when we talk about our hopes and fears about the innovation of new technologies in business, we're really talking about our hopes and fears concerning the people who are in control of technological businesses. It's easy to lose touch with the human beings who are behind the development and implementation of new digital technologies in business. The designer Jordan Wright at LPK is reacting against the tendency for the human role to fade as technology takes center stage in business. So this year, he's decided to pay more attention to the people he works with. Um, I'm Jordan Wright. I'm a senior designer at LPK. Um, I moved to Cincinnati about three years ago, straight out of college. I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design, where I have a BFA in graphic design. I went into graphic design because it was like the perfect bridge of art and people, um, designing for people and really trying to understand what they need. And that's um, kind of one of my missions for this year is to be more people focused, if I can be. Where the industry is going with all this autonomy and so tech forward, it's gonna come to a halt where people are like, wait, I, I haven't talked to a person today. I haven't spoken to an actual person. I haven't touched a person. So I think if uh, companies can get ahead of, ahead of that and think on the other end, because trends always come to an end and we're gonna like do a 180, I feel like and come straight back to like, oh my gosh, we are human, we need uh, human interaction. When we work in business, working with technology is the default, but always choosing the default leads to stagnation. Sometimes Jordan looks for a different way of working. Um, so personally, I've done um, like fasts from social media um, because I found myself just scrolling just to scroll. And I was starting to get to a point to where I was tired of kind of this fake interaction with people. So for an example, um, a lot of my family is still in South Carolina, of course. And we would like send each other memes or, or like send something funny. 
and that would be considered I talked to you today and then I just one day I just sat down I was like no I didn't talk to you I sent you something funny I didn't ask you how you were doing I didn't I don't know what's going on in your life I just sent you something and you responded it wasn't a real interaction and I was kind of using that as a way of saying that I was keeping in touch and I started to feel a little artificial so I took a fast to see um, to almost do a test to see if I would reach out more to people and if people would reach out more to me. And it kind of let me see where I was landing in my relationships with people. Um, and then on the business side, I think pushing people to do things that are outside of technology. So using social media, but then kind of tying in a way to get people outside or talking to somebody else is a good way to like kind of bring that to break that cycle of just staying so um, so closed off in your own technology or in your own phone or in your home. As our experience with digital technology matures, people are coming to the conclusion that, though its functions can be empowering, there's something about the digital world that leads us to become profoundly out of balance. To counter this imbalance, there's a new profession of people working to help their clients break free from the grip of their technology. Johan is one of the pioneers in this field. Yeah, so I'm uh, Johan. I'm uh, born in the Netherlands, and uh, I now live in Dublin. And since 2011, around 2011, I uh, bought my real first smartphone. And uh, I became pretty fast. I became addicted. Well, in, in, in that time, I was not really thinking about addiction, but I was a lot of time on my mobile. But it was in 2011, and the iPhone was introduced in 2007. So people already had smartphones, but not that many. So many still had future phones. So uh, then actually, only in 2013, I really became aware of my addiction and how I was spending time on social media um, because I started to focus on a specific purpose. And that's when I started to focus on reducing this usage of my phone and social media. And, and as a result, eliminating the addiction. It, it, it is like an addiction. The way you behave with your phone and social media is like you're an addicted. So... So then with my partner, who was also a phone addict and a social media addict, we started socialmediabreakup.com. And uh, the, so with the website, we help people with their phone addiction, social media addiction. And yeah, the irony is we use social media to create the awareness about the problem, about us. And, but we use social media because the, the addicts are on social media. And also, it's not that we focus on complete abstinence. It, it's just it's about moderation. It's it's okay to use social media, but you got to be mindful about it. You got to be aware how you spend your time. Peter Corper, who we first met in last week's episode, tells us more about the addictive qualities of digital experiences and the lines it has led him to cross. I use technology day in, day out because of a smartphone and I have other things um, that I kind of enjoy every once in a while and that kind of help me every once in a while but that I use maybe not in a uh, deliberately enough way, no it's not an adverb, in a deliberate enough way uh, and sometimes almost unconscious. 
and I have to think about how what does that do with me as a parent of four children I try to have for instance the smartphones off the table when we have dinner but I find myself doing it every once in a while because there is this important email I have to answer and I have to watch whether it comes in and not so I, I, I overstep that, board, uh, that line um, ever so often and I think and, and I can live with that to some extent as long as it is still obvious to me um, but I find myself in scenarios where I have a good talk with somebody and I have that message coming in and I'm looking at my watch with, which displays that because it's so important to have that right away and I realize, boy, I mean there is a part of the world that is theoretical almost at my watch and there is this individual pers person that I'm approaching that I can look into the eye and, and touch and feel and talk to. I fear that we are not able to contain the Pandora box because um, I'm in, in, in the IT area since lots of years and I see developments. I, I'm usually working either for companies or support them who uh, are at the leading edge of technology because they have all these little uh, programs that all the big ones, uh, big companies in this IT world uh, provide to infiltrate and to gather data and use that data and do algorithms that kind of predict what people will do and ultimately they will do that. <laughs> so I'm, I don't know, on, on that page I think it's rather a grim outlook because I'm afraid that we don't have the means as human, humans or humanity to contain uh, what could come out of that. Johan from Social Media Breakup explains that the addictive pull that Peter observes in his family life and in the business setting begins with the simple desire to be liked. Because of the like feature, now there is a way of measuring uh, how much we are appreciated uh, online. So what, what happens is because of this feedback that you get from people, you start to invest in this persona uh, because now you're basing your types of posts on the feedback that you receive from, from friends and from acquaintances. So what, what happens is you start to now invest in this persona that is not you, but the, the problem is we, we think we become identified with this persona that we're creating online. And since there's so many people online, uh, there is this sense of FOMO when we're not. You see, like, everyone now assumes you have to know everything because they assume that you are on Facebook seeing their posts. Mm -hmm. So everyone has now this, this kind of fear of missing out because they don't, everyone wants to feel part of a community. It's certain tribes. So if, if they see that, um, if they see that everyone is there and you're not, you feel excluded. And people who are not good at being alone, to enjoy their aloneness, and they often, unfortunately, they feel lonely. So because they feel lonely, they, they retreat back to social media to create some form of significance by, by, by posting and then hoping to get those likes. And then they compete with their own posts by trying to gain even more likes. Johan is talking about a problem that has always been present in business culture. 
we're told that we can only manage what we can measure. So with just a tiny slip in our reasoning, we presume that the things that a business is able to measure must be the things that we need to focus on managing. 20 years ago, businesses ran just fine without gathering any online social media likes. Over the last decade, social media marketing has come to seem absolutely essential. How did that change happen? Social media provided a means of measurement, the like, and therefore created the appearance that it had something that must be important to manage, both personal and business users of social media, and digital technologies more broadly, have been caught in this trick. The specific logical error that's operating in this context is known as the McNamara fallacy. This fallacy is named after Robert McNamara, who was an early adopter of the quantified self ideology. McNamara believed that he could win the Vietnam War by carefully managing certain military statistics, such as enemy body count and rate of military enlistment. These were statistics that were relatively easy to measure, and so McNamara leaped to the conclusion that the statistics were in themselves essential. McNamara confused measurability with relevance. He stuck with the old business school adage that you can't manage what you can't measure, and he measured his way into losing the war. Digital media puts consumers and corporations alike in the position of Robert McNamara, focused like lasers on the quantitative data delivered by online analytic systems while ignoring cues from the offline world because they don't come in the form of a cute, concise, glowing dashboard. The fact that consumers fell en masse for the McNamara fallacy of social media at the same time that the business world was besieged by hordes of self-appointed social media marketing experts made the allure of the social media like difficult to deny. This difficulty, however, was of the same nature as the difficulty of being the first to point out that the emperor is not wearing any clothes. The addictive nature of digital media for consumers and businesses alike goes far beyond a simple logical fallacy, of course. Digital devices come with an emotional hook hidden within the regular appearance of quantified progress. It's difficult to deny that progress is being made when the numbers keep going up. The fact that there isn't any necessary connection between on-screen numbers and off-screen needs fades in comparison to the emotional boost we receive every time we look at our increasing numbers. As Johann explains, the measurement junkie that is the quantified self is addicted to the dopamine reinforcement that accompanies every digital notification. So it's also in terms of the phones, it's, it's the way with these notifications, the way the, you receive those dopamine hits, it's, 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 it's a rush. You know, you become addicted to those dopamine hits. So what happens is if you don't get those hits, 
then you will check your mobile often, more often, more often. So every, every five minutes, you're like kind of checking and checking and checking. And then you don't get that dopamine hit that makes you like uh, happy for, for a specific moment of time, just a short period of time. What you do as a result is you start posting on social media and, uh, and then you expect interaction and then there it goes. The dopamine hit come to, comes because you will receive a notification or hear a notification. Johan explains that the quantified notifications of digital media get in the way of our attention to things that are essential to success, but difficult to measure. Things like face-to-face -face human interactions, which for centuries have formed the foundation of professional and personal success alike, only have the opportunity to be restored, Johan says, when people stop focusing so much on the objective but often irrelevant metrics delivered by digital technology. Well, I think we as, as, as human beings, when we are immersed so much in our, in our social media platforms, then what happens is we create less empathy. We, we, we lose connection to the world. So we think that the offline world is a fake world and the virtual world is the real world. Social media maybe improves relationships that are with people that are far away, but, um, but it kind of destroys the relationships with people close to you. So they start to focus on relationships uh, with people that are close to them. So you, so you, for example, I hear stories that they then start cooking with their kids. Um, they go, they go out for a restaurant and they don't, they, they let, they don't bring their phones with them. Um, they, they start to appreciate each other more. Johan has observed a reversal of the enthusiastic adoption of digital technology. As the initial blush of rapid innovation fades, the use of digital technology no longer carries the excitement it once did. Now, digital technology is often perceived as a burdensome source of new tasks to be done, delivering a dreary routine of clicks and swipes that people wish they could escape. Well, I think the being on social media all the time, it is, it is uh, hindering our creativity, create, creative process, um, because we don't have those moments that we're just daydreaming, because we always have these mobiles that are just interrupting us all the time. So there's no moments of, of just thinking about anything, or just daydreaming, and just, and just let your mind uh, fly wherever it wants to go. We, 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 we don't because we become bored fast. So we need, we need our phones. Uh, we need distraction all the time. So, and also when, when, then when it comes to having this creativity and to actually apply it, that's harder as well, because it's harder now to focus, to keep focusing on actual work. So when you're creative and you want to write or you want to paint, or you want to produce in any way, then unfortunately, it becomes harder and harder when you're a social media or phone addict because you become good at being distracted. Like the brain expects being distracted. It cannot focus. The, the neural pathways that, uh, that are oriented in making you focus properly, they are declining. Their effectiveness is, are declining. So, but the neural pathways when it comes to being distracted are being formed. So you become better at being distracted. So how deep work becomes harder and harder. Vasco Gaspar, the specialist in human flourishing we met in last week's episode, talks about the role 
that digital notifications play in our habituation to a constantly distracted mind, making applications like Slack more of a drain from our professional efforts than an asset. Mostly, well, I noticed an increase, especially when social networks started to appear in mobile and smartphones. Um, because, yeah, actually we have 24 hours and um, the, the thing is that there's so much more things to answer. So, oh, I notice a notification in my phone, so I need to go there. And then and suddenly there is the email and I need to go to the email. And then uh, the boss sends an email with a CC of 30 people. Then those people start to respond to each other. And then and there is a, a lack of, of ability to deal with all of these stimulants because most of them are not important. But, but it's difficult to... Uh, distinguish what's important from what's not, uh, because everything starts to be important, even the most of the things that are not. So it's, so the thing is that I think more and more we, we need to, to have, uh, to train, first of all, our capacity to be present and to be aware, uh, because otherwise we are always chasing for the, the stimulus. It's, uh, and, and nowadays we have so much things in our head uh, and we became so much kind of a conceptual society, everything is in the head, that we lose contact with, with, with so much that is inside of us, the heart, the body, the emotions, the, 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 the quality of the relationship, the silence. Um, we are kind of, as Alan Watts said in the, in the 60s, addicted to, to thoughts. It's like a, a drug. We are addicted to always be on thinking and thinking and thinking. And, and, and we are kind of almost afraid to be with ourselves, especially the parts of ourselves that we are not so comfortable with. As we navigate this new digital world, we're seeking affirmation, but we're looking for resolution too. It's difficult to find satisfaction while immersed in these virtual environments, Vasco warns, because they've been purposefully designed as psychological traps. These traps aren't just harming our personal lives. They're getting in the way of our ability to work effectively as well. Um, I think we need to make peace with ourselves and friendship with ourselves. And, and, and the first step is to become aware of that. It's, it's to, to strengthen our capacity to be aware. But the technology companies, most of them, they want our awareness. They want our attention. Actually, that's what they are getting their money from. Uh, it's, it's so it's it's difficult because we have some of the most skilled psychologists nowadays uh, working in companies like Facebook and, and others uh, to find ways to hook our attention. Uh, so and it's kind of not a fair um, a game because um, they know how to get our attention and it's so difficult. I noticed that for me now it's much more difficult now to for instance read a book. Um, because at some point, if the book is not stimulating, because I'm so used to be stimulated on and on by notifications and so on, it's it's kind of I I notice that I lose the capacity to to become aware and focus my attention. Um, so if you are losing this thing that is so so basic for us humans to make decisions and to become aware, um, it's easy to kind of to be controlled and to kind of just being chasing the sticks that the others are throwing to us. Many people feel that they have no choice. 
They believe that owning and using digital technology has become a fundamental requirement for participation in society. The possibility of escape from the habits of digital drudgery suddenly became a possibility for many people, however, when Vitamin Water announced that it would pay one person $100,000 to live for an entire year without a smartphone. Because that's the beautiful thing. You see with this Vitamin Water concept of winning 100K is that people start dreaming and they see suddenly all these opportunities. They can visualize all these opportunities. But then I just hope and I just pray for these people that even if they lose, that they will still pursue those visions that they have for the future. I want to make it clear that I'm not participating in the vitamin water contest. I'm not being paid by vitamin water to promote a phone-free lifestyle. In fact, this podcast is not sponsored by any businesses at all. I've seen too often how corporate sponsorships lead to pressure to shift content so that it doesn't offend conventional business culture. Nonetheless, at the end of last year, I decided to make all of 2019 a year without a smartphone. What's more, I decided that I wouldn't use any mobile, cellular-enabled digital technology at all. I gave up my iPhone and my iPad. I'm not even using a smartwatch, a Fitbit, or a GPS navigator in my car. Why am I doing this? Part of it is that I'm looking for room to breathe. I'm reminded of what Matthew Burgess, who specializes in designing environments where creativity can flourish, told me earlier this year. Fear makes you want to un open the lid some t of, 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 and let it all out and just to be overwhelmed by it all. Um, but actually to take time for, your, for yourself, for me to go and shut my computer and go walk on the beach. Mm. Um, to make sure that there's little rituals that I can do to bring myself into, you know, the, 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 the cliches in, in, in this situation ring true, that to find things you're grateful about, to feel the air going into your lungs, to watch your thoughts come and go. What Matthew is describing here is very simple. He's talking about the experience of paying attention to your own breath, about having a moment of basic self-awareness. Yet, this kind of healthy reflection is not a part of the experiences that are fostered through digital technology. I decided to spend this year without a smartphone because I realized that with my iPhone, I felt every moment as if it was urgent. This constant urgency was not positive for me. It was wearing me out. I was trying to optimize every moment because there was something that the iPhone could add to any moment. If I was waiting in line, instead of being still with my own thoughts, I could take out my iPhone and check the messages that I had received from others. If I was traveling, instead of reflecting on my journey, 
I could listen to an audiobook or a podcast to learn about something happening somewhere else, to somebody else. With my iPhone in my hand, every moment became measured. I felt like I was always behind where I should have been, in a race to do better. The trick was that my iPhone wasn't helping me do better at the things that really mattered to me. It was merely providing me with material to fill up the empty moments of my life so that I could feel that I was making progress at something without much regard to whether that something was in alignment with the journey I wanted to be on. I was moving all the time, but without direction. I had fallen into the trap of the McNamara fallacy. My numbers were always ticking up, and I became anxiously attached to them, even though those numbers were not measuring what I wanted from my life. I lost track of my own purpose, seduced by the false clarity of my digital device's quantitative measurements. When I announced that I was going to spend all of 2019 without a smartphone or any other mobile cellular device, reactions were mixed. Some people were supportive, but others seemed disturbed by the idea that a person could live without a smartphone. For these people, it was as if I had announced that I was going to stop wearing pants. They empathized with the sense of alienation that I felt, but going an entire year without using my iPhone was going too far for them. They suggested that I try a half measure. Perhaps, they advised me, I could download a time management app on my smartphone to make sure that I used the device less often. They didn't grasp that these apps would be little more than just one more hack. One more twist in the relentless campaign of self-optimization to which my iPhone had enlisted me. Francine Stevens, an innovation specialist who we met in last week's episode, told me that she has considered these time management apps, but she's more interested in purely offline activities, going analog all the way, rather than engaging in the self-defeating effort of having to use her smartphone to manage her time away from her smartphone. It's funny because there's quite a few people bringing out innovations of, you know, which is which is quite a kind of entertaining, like applications that you can install to turn off your phone. Um, so, so there are a lot of people that are recognizing that being always on is not necessarily a healthy thing. And I think um, if you just even look in, I just walked past last night a, a small store. It's a calligraphy store, and they have a wait list now of people that just want to spend some time doing something that's not online, something that allows them to, to work in art and work it slowly and just enjoy the process. Um, so I think... Yeah, I think there's very much an opportunity for that. And um, and also just reconnecting with people. It's amazing how lonely we are um, as a race at the moment when we're technically more connected than ever. Remember once upon a time when we believed that digital devices would help us to connect 
with other people? The opposite is what has actually taken place. Progressively, open platforms have been closed. Social media networks now purposefully conceal our friends' updates from us and maintain barriers on expensive toll roads of business communication rather than providing an open highway. With our digital technology, we're always connected to something. Nonetheless, as Francine says, we're always lonely. Widespread success in business through digital technology has been as illusory as enhanced social connection. For a while, there was a hope that digital innovation might open up business, providing more opportunity to more people who had been on the outside. As the years have progressed, however, we have seen that the digital economy amplifies income inequality and shrinks business opportunity. There are very few lords of digital technology, and they do not share power. So how do we respond? The artist Mio Locler cautions that the solution to the commercial and societal problems created by digital technology cannot come from digital technology itself, because the digital playing field is dominated by the bullies at the top. Never fight with a bad bully. Mm -hmm. They will drag you down to their level and then they win by experience. And how, what does it mean to digitization and the mirror? Never try to keep up with that form of accelerated digitization. First, you will reduce the complexity of your behavior and then you will be outperformed by computing power. Mio warns that the more we try to compete on the terms of digital technology, the further we will fall behind. Only the largest companies have the brute resources now to produce competitive services in machine learning. The energy that it takes to train an artificial intelligence system in just one limited domain releases as much carbon pollution into the atmosphere as an entire fleet of cars would in an entire year full of commuting. It's no wonder that most startups can only move forward now with the sponsorship of the feudal lords of our time, the venture capitalists. The digital fix is in. If current trends continue, the majority of people in business will be squeezed by increasing automation, not just by losing their jobs, but even more often by losing the quality of their jobs as algorithmic workplace optimization programs eliminate every spare remaining moment of joy from our schedules. The best chance ordinary people have of entering a world of commerce that values their humanity will come through the decision that they have had enough of the digital chains that restrict their movements and constrict their lives. The low prices available to us through online businesses come at too high a cost to bear. So, turn off your smartphone. Put it down.
walk away. Maybe you don't think that's possible. And it's true that it won't be easy because you are an addict and going cold turkey is going to hurt for a while. But here's how I did it. First, understand that half measures will not get the job done. Using an app to reduce your smartphone use will work about as well as an alcoholic asking a bartender not to serve him too many drinks. Attempts to use your phone only on certain days or at certain times of day will be successful for a limited amount of time because digital devices are expert at disorienting us from awareness of the normal passage of time. We all know how checking a device just one more time can lead to hours of compulsive, repetitive checking. So I suggest that you kill your smartphone. That's what I did, and I held a funeral for it to seal the deal. First, I canceled my cellular service. Then I allowed the battery on my iPhone to run down to absolute zero. Next, I put it in a watertight container and buried it in the ground in my backyard. When springtime came, I planted a vegetable and flower garden on top of the grave. More on that in another episode. But if you live in a city, you might not have a patch of ground available to you. If that's the case, use a friend. Give your friend your smartphone to keep, along with a few dollars or a nice gift for their trouble. Tell them not to give it back to you, no matter how much you beg. The point is not just to make it difficult to reactivate your phone, but to create a symbolic separation from it as well. What you're doing through this action is to conduct a kind of funeral ritual, not just for your smartphone, but for the version of yourself that grew accustomed to using a smartphone without a thought. My next step was to make a conspicuous announcement that I would not have any cell phone or other mobile digital device for the entire rest of the next year. It was important to let people know why I would not be answering calls or texts to my old phone number anymore, but I was also putting my credibility on the line. After telling people that I was going without a smartphone, it would be a terrible embarrassment to be caught using one. Be prepared for some resistance and use it to stiffen your resolve. This is an opportunity to develop some well-deserved pride. I will never forget the message I got from a remote acquaintance telling me that I didn't have the right to cut myself off from her communications by shutting off my iPhone. How dare I, she asked me, be so selfish to think that I have the right to be unreachable if she needs to get in touch with me. Now, this person was not a client or a colleague, a close friend, or a family member. She was someone I met at a conference a couple of years ago and had chatted with on Twitter a few times since then. Yet, she was not alone in her objections. Most of my business contacts have accepted my lack of digital mobile devices with a little bit of confusion, a touch of amusement, or even a hint of appreciation. 
but not everyone is on board. Luckily, the outraged questions all have an easy answer. How will I get in touch with you? Well, send me an email. Call me on my landline. If I'm at home, or if you're really desperate, write me a letter and take it to the post office. How will you make your appointments on time? Well, I'll pay attention to the clocks that are all around me. How will you find your destination? I'll look at maps before I leave, write myself a few notes of orientation, and memorize my route, just like people used to do. How will you check in for your flight at the airport? I had to smile at this question coming from a colleague fresh out of college. Now, there are some professions where people really do need to keep smartphones with them all the time, but most people who believe that they need mobile digital devices don't actually have to have them any more than a smoker truly needs a cigarette. Are you a neurosurgeon, the only one in your city who can perform the life-saving procedure to save the life of that patient who otherwise will be dead by dawn? Well, you should carry a smartphone. Are you a crack homicide detective, waiting for the lab results that will let you know if you should pursue the person you suspect of being a serial killer? You need a smartphone. Are you a business professional who needs to be available just in case there are last-minute revisions to the PowerPoint presentation deck that the liaison on the client team needs to be confirmed by midnight? You do not need a smartphone. You need to work for a company that respects your dignity as a human being. I am a freelance research consultant who frequently travels for work often to places I have never been before. So I need to plan ahead a little before my trips. But it's been over half a year now since I gave up my iPhone, and I have yet to encounter a single situation that I couldn't deal with without that iPhone. I am not going completely without digital technology, of course. I'm merely giving up on mobile cellular communications devices, like smartphones. So I can still use my laptop to get onto a Wi-Fi connection and communicate in that way if I really need to. The difference with a laptop is that it's large and conspicuous, and it can't be used just anywhere. So I won't just casually whip out my laptop just because I'm feeling bored. Now, I won't lie. I'm not going to tell you that I haven't had moments where I long to have my iPhone back in my hand. The first couple of months without it were the most difficult. I had never stopped to consider how much light and color and cheery sound my iPhone had given me. I live close to the border with Canada, and since January and February are in the middle of winter, they felt especially cold and dark without that familiar little screen shining in my face. I had forgotten how dim, drab, and gray the world is in the middle of winter. For weeks, I wanted something desperately to check. I remember one moment in January when my wife left her iPhone out on the kitchen counter without turning it off. I remember looking at it and thinking that I could pick it up 
and I could just check one thing really quickly, and no one would know. I didn't even have an idea about what I wanted to check. I thought I could check her Facebook or her messages. I didn't care. I just wanted to check something. Well, I restrained myself. In the eight months that I have been without a smartphone, I've gotten better at restraint. I am not perfect at it, but I am improving. I no longer feel that heart-pounding sense of urgency to share something, anything, just because that's what I'm supposed to do as a good social media citizen. I feel myself slowing down, choosing to remain silent more often. I allow myself to think about something now, sometimes for hours, for days, or even for weeks before taking action on it, or letting it go. I find myself more willing to say no. No, I'm not available to do that extra piece of work this evening. I need to sleep. No, I can't take a call right now. I need to tend that garden that's growing over the grave of my iPhone. I've got a long way to go, and I have many struggles to deal with. But on the whole, I feel better without my iPhone. And I can't help but wonder what would happen if more people tried this out. Do I actually believe that will happen? Well, no, unfortunately, I don't. The truth is that digital technology has been engineered to be highly addictive, and almost everyone, including our children, are hooked. Three years ago, the World Economic Forum published an article declaring, quote, tech addiction is the new frontier of human dependency, unquote. And then the World Economic Forum did what it does best. It did nothing about it. There's no sign that anything serious is being done to confront the dangerously addictive nature of digital technology. I read through the IEEE's most recent version of Ethically Aligned Design, the most comprehensive ethics document for artificial intelligence that exists. And in 263 pages, all that it has to say on the issue of addiction to digital media is that in the future, quote, there will more than likely be issues similar to the kind of video game addictions we see now, unquote. That's it. Nothing more than that one sentence. Nothing about the many other problematic, addictive digital technologies beyond video games that already exist no guidelines for non-addictive design at all. There isn't even a recommendation that addictive artificial intelligence should be avoided. Even this one sentence is an improvement, though. The first edition of Ethically Aligned Design didn't have a single thing to say on the subject at all. Now, I don't mean to single out the IEEE for shaming on this subject. The organization is doing a great deal of good work, and they have a whole lot of ground to cover in an industry that is changing rapidly. Besides, lack of adequate attention to the impact of digital addiction is not just a problem with the IEEE. 
IBM's Artificial Intelligence Ethics document, Everyday Ethics for Artificial Intelligence, doesn't address addiction at all. The ethics guidelines from the European Union's high-level expert group on AI doesn't either. Google's principles on the ethical development of AI also fail to bring the subject up. The problem is with the digital industry as a whole, made up of corporations that employ vast armies to develop and deploy new technologies, but invest almost nothing in comparison to develop and implement ethical guidelines to prevent their inventions from harming humanity. This widespread failure to implement ethical guidelines for dealing with addictive artificial intelligence is particularly unnerving when we consider the way that the digital technology companies routinely violate their own ethical guidelines and promises of restraint. Rigorous, detailed ethics guidelines for technological development in business would be an improvement, but they wouldn't be enough. We need legal regulation of the development of digital technologies that are designed to promote addictive behavior. Yet, the big technology companies are all doing it, and they're all trying to develop a new frontier in digital addiction, emotion AI systems that are designed to scan our bodies in order to read our emotions and then deliver matching content that keeps us more helplessly hooked than ever. You'll hear more about that issue in next week's episode, which deals with the integration of human emotion into the design of business. There is a great deal more to talk about on these subjects, but this is the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Maidan for the music that you're listening to now. The song's name is Underwater, and it's from the album For Creators. <laughs> <laughs>